The Center for Mediation and Training is offering a 40-hour basic training in divorce mediation. This spring training is held on Fridays and Sundays on April 21st and 23rd, May 19th and 21st, and again on June 9th and 11th. This training covers the legal, financial, and emotional issues that are common in the divorce process. It's also part 146 approved and certified for 40, yes, that's 40 CEUs and 41 CLE credits. Register now at divorcemediation.com. Again, that's divorcemediation.com. You can also call area code 212-799-4302 to get a special discount. Hello, and welcome to the AAMFT podcast. You're all access pass to the latest news developments and thought leaders in the world of systemic therapy. We strive to relate, educate, and innovate one episode at a time. I'm your host, Dr. Eli Karam, and we're brought to you by the American Association for Marriage and Family Therapy. Our podcast explores topics that relationship-based therapists care about. In addition to featuring unique conversations and interviews with established experts, our show provides information and education on direct practice and emerging trends in the MFT profession. For more information, please visit us at aamft.org. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Today on the AAMFT podcast, we're talking about the importance of systemic therapists continuing to be curious and do work on their own family of origin issues in order to grow and to help their clients. Addressing family of origin issues is not about placing blame, but it's rather about healing unresolved trauma, increasing awareness and gaining new perspectives about dysfunctional patterns that our clients and sometimes ourselves reenact In adulthood, many times, the same issues from one's family of origin get somehow played out again, either in the couple or parent-child relationships, or sometimes even in the therapy room. And there's no better person to talk to that about today than Vienna Farron. Vienna was in first grade when her parents separated. A wound deepened by a nine-year divorce battle that she's going to talk about today. Witnessing that rupture in her family unit made her vow to avoid the dysfunction and fallout of that trauma in her adult life. But to truly leave her painful past behind, as she would learn, would require her to confront it head-on with introspection, resolve, and self-examination. I met Vienna when she was 22. Today, it's 15 years later, and she's a much-sought-after licensed marriage and family therapist in LMFT and a popular Instagram relationship expert at Mindful MFT. Her wisdom and straightforward approach can be also seen in the new book, The Origins of You, How Breaking Family Patterns Can Liberate the Way We Live in Love. The book zeroes in on our families of origin, the early caregivers who provided first lessons on everything from love and conflict to safety and trust. Many of us out there as relational healers 
systemic therapists get to do amazing work and hopefully impact the lives of our client systems and be a part of some really major events. But every once in a while, somebody can break through and get that message, which we all know the power of family therapy, of family systems, and can break through and give that message to the masses. Vienna has been able to do that. So today we'll talk about her journey. And I really enjoyed connecting with my colleague, friend, former supervisee. We'll be back after the interview. Are progress notes stressing you out? Good documentation is essential for a high standard of care, but the time and effort involved can feel overwhelming. If you've experienced that overwhelm, Chronicler can help. Chronicler's intuitive note builder lets you compose excellent progress notes right in your browser, often in three minutes or less. Sign up today for a two-week free trial at TherapyShelf.com. That's TherapyShelf.com and see how easy high-quality progress notes can be. Eli, back with you on the AAMFT podcast. Throughout the last five years, I have been able to talk to some of my colleagues that I have valued over the years, some of my mentors, and some people I've always wanted to talk to in the field. But this is the first time today, and this is a big-time mainstream guest that takes MFT and systems thinking and transgenerational patterns to the mainstream, but this was my first individual supervisees, my most accomplished students. So never have I been able to interview someone that I have had played just a little tiny piece in the training, but welcome to the podcast, Vienna. We're going to talk a lot about not only your new book, The Origins of You, but really how you've been able to be an entrepreneurial MFT and really used technology, including social media to really get your message out there and really take systemic thinking to the mainstream. So I actually know your origin story, but for our listeners, how did you get interested in systems thinking and family therapy? I will answer your question, but I cannot continue on without acknowledging how special of a moment this is for me too. And you played much more than a small, tiny, little piece in the puzzle. I forgot that I was your first individual supervisee, so I love that reminder. But truly, you had probably the biggest impact on me in my work and my training. And I will never forget, I roped you into doing lives with me so many times. And I am so grateful that I got to learn from you Oh my gosh, all those years ago. So thank you for that beautiful introduction. But it's it's emotional for me to be here with you today and full circle and excited for our conversation. Okay, my origin story, how I got into this work. It's interesting. I When I started graduate school at Northwestern, I entered in, I don't know if you remember this, but I entered in and I held the narrative that my parents' divorce didn't affect me at all the story. That yeah, you were good. No I problem. Good. You understood it. You didn't need to do a genogram or any work on yourself because <laughs> you understood your role and yeah. you were good with it. I was good. They were friends now. They would travel to my games and we'd have holidays together. And yeah, like I was unaffected. And I held that I, and I 
I think back now and I get such a chuckle out of it because I'm like, oh my gosh, my supervisors and professors and advisors must have just been like, sweet girl, <laughs> you are in the right place. And as we know, and as our listeners here know, I think much of the time we enter into this work knowingly, unknowingly, in an attempt to resolve that which is unresolved. And for me at the time, I was not aware really of it. And it was really hard for me. It makes sense because if you grow up in a family system in which the role that you take on is one where you fly under the radar and you pretend to be fine and unaffected because the adults around you are crashing and burning and you your perception is that they are not fine. That's that is where this all generated for me. My parents, they went through a nine-year separation divorce process. It was long and strung out, and there was a tremendous amount of high conflict and psychological abuse, manipulation, gaslighting, paranoia, emotional flooding. Just everything you could possibly think of was in the mix. And I am also an only child, and I share that detail because I didn't have any other little humans in the space. Neither of my parents were remarried or repartnered at any point. So there weren't any other adults in the space either who could be a sounding board. And so just little Vienna, I was growing up in this environment where through my lens, I saw the collapse. And I decided that the best way for me to navigate this, this family, this system was by flying under the radar and pretending like I was fine because I didn't believe that there was room for me to not be fine. And I think, and we all know this, but it's an important reminder, whether that was true or not really didn't matter, right? Whether there was actually space for me to not be fine for them really didn't matter because what mattered was my perception and my experience of what was going on and how that role was something that came along with me for decades on end. There's a lot of other things that contribute to that, but my adult relationships and my partnerships, I was the needless little girl turned needless woman. I was laundryless. I embodied the cool girl persona, which meant, yeah, totally fine. Absolutely. Whatever you want. That was a place that I could exist in. And there was no voice and there was no way for me to be expressed because of the irresolution that was kind of living within me, something that I had just not actually addressed for a period of time until I really connected with, oh my gosh, here's this role that I took on all these decades ago and it is still running the show today and it is destroying relationships and all. You know, it's interesting then because when we get in training programs, many MFT programs, they want you to write a family of origin narrative and lots of young people. And you were coming very, you were coming straight out of undergraduate. So you're 22 years old and uh, again, a high achiever, a student, a scholar and an athlete. And you, then you come in and people either, they can recount their family of origin almost from a level removed. And it seems like they're good with it, but it's hard sometimes to tell, even if you can talk about it, if you've done the work and with the work is very different at 22 than it is, this is 15 years ago or so that we met. So I'm curious, the 22 year old you and the more evolved professional you now that has really studied this, what do you think in general you can do as far as understanding yourself while you're in a training program? Because many young professionals, these students listen to this and have followed your work and other times, you know, that you're, you can only do work at certain points in your life and you can't, it's developmentally impossible 
to have some understanding at certain points. And many times we get into this field very young. I was the same age and I wasn't a parent yet. I wasn't married yet. So how has your knowledge of your family of origin changed as you have changed? And what do you think is possible as far as growth, what any systemic therapist should do as far as to continue to understand where they came from and how those patterns affect their development in the here and now. Yeah, I was really good at what I call factual storytelling. And I think a lot of us can be good at that. Hey, here's the story. Here's what happened. And we, yeah, we just, we can share that high level details of what went on. We know it. Maybe we've even spoken it out loud to so many people over the years. But for me, at least, that was a disconnector. That was still a distraction away from actually connecting to the pain. And that that took me a long time, too. I don't know that I even got there during grad school. I think that started to happen a few years later. And to your point, there's going to be chapters, there's going to be moments in life that open something up. And we all know this, that we're probably going to only be able to lead clients to a certain point until we're able to resolve a little bit more within ourselves. And that's, I was a decent enough therapist in the beginning and even the years after, but I could also just notice how far I could go with clients of mine. And before it was time for them to transition or find another therapist who could walk them a little bit further. And so much of that was a reflection of where I was capable of going with myself. And I hear this in with clients a decent amount where people will come in and they're like, here's my story. And they just rattle it off. And there's no connection to the feeling, to the emotion at all. And I think as clinicians, again, part of our work through the years and decades that we're going to be in this field is to acknowledge or notice in what ways not going there is serving something, right? As we know, right, the constraint question that every MFT is taught pretty early on in our training is so useful for us throughout our practice. What is keeping me from going there? What is keeping me from feeling more? What is keeping me from connecting to the pain differently than I had before? What does it serve to be a factual storyteller? Okay, that to me was like, okay, I know my story. That's great. But it served me in the sense that it kept me from having to be with the pain that was so overwhelming for me. I didn't know how to do that. I had never had space to do that before. And so as a 21, 22, 23-year-old kind of entering into this space, like, hell no. It's like that wall was way up. I'm not going to do that. I'm fine. And to even utter the words, I'm affected, that's That was so hard. I didn't utter those words until my late 20s, even. To say to someone where I knew that there was a risk, this happened in a relationship, someone I was dating at the time, his ex came back into the picture, wanted to be with him, and he was deciding whether he was going to be in relationship with her or stay in relationship with me. And automatically, bam, I'm like, "Oh, oh, of course, take all the time you need. I totally understand. This must be such a hard experience for you automatically shift into this therapeutic role as opposed to, wait, hang on, what does this feel like for me? And prior to that moment, it's like I was just existing in that space, pretending like things were fine, pretending like I was unaffected. And that was the big catalyst for me. And I think it's so important, even though 
not every clinician's story obviously is going to be similar to my story. I think that question in these early years and as we continue evolving and peeling back layers is what am I afraid of looking at? What am I keeping myself? What is the fear that if I go there, what's going to happen? And I, in that moment, in that relationship, had this aha and really big breakthrough of, oh, this is the role that I've been embodying since childhood. And I remember saying to him out loud for the first time to anyone that I was feeling disrespected, that I wasn't okay with what was going on. And my, my heart is racing out of my chest and my palms are sweating. And we know that when we have never uttered those words before to say that thing out loud for the first time, it's a big shift. But that's it. It's like I knew that the outcome might not be the outcome that I really wish and desire in terms of what would happen with our relationship. But the outcome in advocating for myself, the outcome for being emotionally expressed, the outcome of leading with my authenticity instead of hiding and covering up was this big, huge shift, really life-changing for me at the time. And I think, again, our responsibility as clinicians is to keep coming back to it. And it's the same message when it comes to exploring family of origin. Every single time I explore my family of origin, I find something new. The different stages of my life are going to present new details, new moments that stand out to me because I'm in a different chapter. I am a new mother. I have a two-year-old now. And you just think about, oh, these transitions in life, these different identities in which we enter into. And, oh, what does that bring me into contact with within the context of my family of origin as I step into motherhood, as I step into parenthood, as I enter into this next chapter, my father's 85 years old. And considering even though he's healthy enough, right, obviously he's in the final chapter here. And so as these pieces present, our responsibility is to continue to go back in to see what it is that is going to be presented and revealed to us. And sometimes we're ready, sometimes we're not ready. That's okay. But to continue with this open heart and open mind to have those pieces be revealed. Yeah, I often say on the show and in my writing that this is one of the greatest professions because it's not like pharmaceutical sales or being a professional athlete. You, you can't age out of it as long as you stay self-reflective, both to your own process and to those of clients. Once you think you have it all figured out, you might as well quit because it is something that evolves as you evolve. So you clearly have evolved. Now, some people, when they hit these either impasses, some type of interface or counter-transference issue in their clinical work, then they're forced to go inward. You had this real relationship dilemma that made you look at things differently for a while. We can't require that while you're in a training program, you get your own therapy. But certainly in my life, I've found my own therapy while I was training afterwards. And even now, certainly influential to my ability to evolve as a clinician, a husband, a father. What, when you had this wake up call here, what are your thoughts on doing your own work? Yeah, it's so necessary. And yeah, of course, you can't require people to do it. But when I look back, I didn't, I only did group therapy that was part of curriculum. I didn't step into individual therapy during grad school. And it makes a whole heck of a lot of sense when I look back on it, because that was still my way of 
trying to avoid the pain and trying to act away from it. Very intentional, kind of, but I was unknowingly at the time, but I can see how (laughs) my system was operating and trying to protect me from that. And I've been in therapy for a very long time now. And yeah, if I could give myself advice back then, I think I would have invited Vienna to step into therapy sooner. And it's, it is really, as long as you have a great therapist, it is really one of the most beneficial things that you can gift yourself. And especially when you are stepping into this role of working with others. And it's like, even just as simple as I remember saying, the supervisors and professors saying, just to even know what it's like to be in the client, to have that sensation of sitting in the waiting room or sitting on the other side of the, or on the sofa or something, for example. And that at the minimum right, is so important. But then beyond that, it's like, this is the place where you get to feel and be expressed and have the experience of hopefully having a whole lot of safety in the room in order for you to come into contact with the stuff in your life that needs your attention. And if you have a good experience in your training with something like that, and to feel like you can revisit throughout your career, I think is so important. Now, you talk a lot about bearing witness. So, you know, bearing witness is, it's a crucial way to process an experience, to get empathy and support. It lightens our low. When you can share something, it's a cathartic experience. So as therapists, we serve as witnesses all the time to our clients. Why do you think it's important along the same line that we've been talking about, that we have others in turn witness for us. That could be us going to therapy, clinicians getting their own therapy. That could be a friend or a mentor. But why is it so important that we have others witness for us as we continue to grow and evolve and in in knowledge of our own family of origin and any wounds that are associated with that? I think this quote actually went out on my page today. and It was, you can't heal without being witnessed. I really stand by that. I think that's right. It's like without witnessing, there is no healing. And whether that is a witnessing for the self of really seeing and being tuned into and acknowledging what our pain is, I believe that the witnessing of the self is an important step. And the belief that if it is relationships that contribute to our wounding, to our pain, then it is relationships that are required to be a participant in the healing and the witnessing as well. The good news is that we don't need the person who contributed to the pain in the first place to be the witness. I know that sometimes we like that idea that, hey, if I could just get my dad to acknowledge this and see this and own up to X, Y, and Z, then I will feel so validated and that's when I will have relief. No, that's a that can be a kind of merry-go-round that we go around and around on that keeps us in our suffering, but that we do either need a therapist or a loving partner or a trustworthy friend or even just I've led many retreats at this point and I'm always struck by how strangers, even under 24 hours of being together, that someone who can hold the space and actually witness and connect to the pain in a clean way can be this life-changing, very healing moment. And yeah, when because everything that we do in life is relational, I really believe that there's such a deep power in having someone outside of us too see what we see. I remember, I'll share a quick personal story. I was having a merry-go-round conversation, conflict with a family member, and my phone was on. 
speaker at the time and Connor, my my husband, was in the apartment. This was before we were married. And he overheard it. It wasn't on because for him to hear it, it was it was on speaker and he had just overheard it. And the conversation went in the same way that the conversation always did. And then I was frustrated and hung up the phone. And I remember Connor turning to me and he just said something along the lines of, I get it. I like really see everything that you've been sharing with me. And he said it better than that. But I remember in that moment, this experience of being witnessed by him, of actually sharing in the same experience that I had just had, that he also had that experience of that person. And all of a sudden, I could feel the grip loosen. It was almost as if I no longer needed to get through to the person that was on the phone line. I no longer needed to enter into that conversation over and over again where we're like, maybe if I write it to you, maybe if I say it really kindly to you, maybe if I yell it at you, like, how can I get this thing across to you? I remember that moment where the grip loosened and was like, actually don't need to do that anymore because I've just been witnessed by you and that's enough. It's like, wow, there it is. Yeah. And that's a powerful story. I've heard you tell that one before. I also can't stress enough this idea about you could it could be witnessed by doing your own therapy it could be witnessed by a supportive loved one like connor was for you but this idea of a retreat i haven't told you a story a couple months ago i'm in molokai the most remote hawaiian island close to the old leper colony it's a place where people have been cast off and exiled and i'm doing this very powerful family of origin retreat with really amazing people a group of 15 or 16 so we're doing the work um doing the family of origin work with a sibling who I am not in contact with and who is not going to probably ever made my perspective or witness it, but to have a collective other people who hear the story and can react and share. And some of these people were clinicians, some were not, but it is powerful. The group witnessing, much like when we think in some of our famous postmodern models with a reflecting team that can come back and share with a client, what they've heard and thought. It's so much even more powerful than feedback a therapist can give. So this witnessing is such an art. Sometimes we think such a powerful issue. We have to, especially young therapists, oh, I have to give homework or if I'm she oriented or I have to help them solve their problem. And sometimes just holding space, especially if that's what we do for other people as therapists, and sometimes we hold space with very challenging systems and problems. So we need people to hold space for us. And you just did a great job of talking about it. So the book, it is a reflection of everything we've been talking about. And I would often look for books that reach the mainstream that can explain something that inherent as systemic family therapist we know. So in our training, and the way we train MFTs doing your own family of origin work and family of origin models or transgenerational patterns, i.e. Murray Bowen, James Framo, like these are part of our history, but you do such a nice job of distilling that down to the mainstream because a mainstream person is not going to read Murray Bowen or family of origin therapy with Jim Framo. So I am curious, knowing you at the beginning of your evolution, were you always interested in these classic transgenerational models, or is that something that happened through your own work over time? Because I do think if somebody is trying to explain patterns and historical things that if they're not dealt with in one part of your life, follow you to the next, 
recommending a book like this really explains it in, in common sense language, or you don't have to be a graduate student in MFT program to understand. So were those models you were initially attracted to or no? Yeah, yeah, it's a great question. And thank you for that. I did want to write something because otherwise it's this work is so overwhelming or confusing to the lay person. And we needed something like this, I think, out in the world. I was really drawn to Bowenian therapy. I remember, yeah, like in intuitively, I think I was drawn to Bowenian frame oak and a contextual Basar Meninaj. And it's interesting because when I look back, I'm like, I have this perspective in this framework of Oh, yeah. Like I was so there were parts that were limited because I wouldn't wasn't willing to really go there personally. I always felt drawn to this in my core. This made the most sense to me. And so it's really it's such a beautiful reflection point for me now, 15 ish years later to be like, wow, yeah, like this part that needed to block certain pieces of this because I didn't want to go there myself. But I always felt this draw towards, yeah, the intergenerational, like just seeing, having as many generations in the therapeutic process, even if they're not literally there, is like having as many of those generations there getting to, towards the end of the book, I offer this exercise that Michael Kerr, who I think is deeply linked with Bowenian therapy, where the exercise is to think of your mother as your grandmother's daughter. And how does that shift the perspective? And I remember being struck by that exercise or that inquiry. To, oh, yeah, this is it. To remember that all of these people were tiny little humans in fractured and flawed and imperfect systems. And what happens when we start to change out the lens that's in front of us, when we can start to explore ourselves and the systems and them through that lens? And of course, what I try to nail through in the book is that Kant is not an excuse, right? Context is a gift, right? That allows us to explore through different lenses. But I think sometimes people get so afraid of that because well, then are we letting that person off the hook? They still did harm. They still hurt me in this way. I don't want to have a reason or explanation for this. And I think there's this real art form that comes, and I think absolutely from these models, when we can strike that balance of having context while also honoring our story. I find that people tend to go in one direction or the other. Either they, whoever they are, mom, grandparents, siblings, whomever, like either, oh, you're the worst and you're the villain and look at what you did, and or Oh, they did the best that they could with what they had. And their parents were way worse than they were to me. It's like we either hang out in this space worth of explanation and rationalizing and distorting, or it's very easy to hang out in the space of look what you've done. And I don't see you as an individual outside of mommy or daddy so in, in filial maturity. It's what we what we think about there. And I think striking that balance really is the art form. And yeah, to to your question, I was always drawn to something always resonated. I don't know that I allowed myself to fully go there because I was still protecting my story, but I was always in intuitively drawn to these models. And they have absolutely over time been informed more and more of the work that I now have been able to put out into the world for the lay person to hopefully understand and connect to. Yeah. And what really makes the book resonate is obviously you share a lot of your story that you're telling us today as a 
only child growing up with divorced parents and you share the stories of your clients. I'm curious, I believe in my own work is self-disclosure. If it can help normalize, humanize something, could be a good thing. Now, self-disclosure in a therapy session for self-disclosure sake, I mean, when it makes it more about the therapist than the client, is clearly not good. When I'm working with a family or a teenager that has lost a parent, as I lost my father, that is one I share a lot. And some people would be like, oh, why are you sharing that? Because it's my frame of reference. It normalizes a lot, but it also holds a space that your experience may be similar and may be different. So I'm curious how much self-disclosure do you think is appropriate to use in session with clients when relating to them about their own family of origin wounds? And I'm curious also what feedback you've gotten from clients when you do share a little bit about your story. Yeah, the feedback is always incredibly positive. And I think part of that, there's there is a line and our ability to discern this line as therapists is critically important that when we are deciding, if we are deciding, if you choose to do this, that when you are sharing a part of your story, it there is a sense of resolution around it. We never share a story when we are in the thick of it. We never share the story when we are in the messy parts of it. Right? That is where, whether we know it or not, we are asking a client to participate in caretaking our experience. And that is absolutely not the job or the role. And yeah, um, similar to you, that when there is something that connects, it says, hey, I have a similar story here. I think that this is something that I gained or I learned that I think is actually pertinent to you. That is when I do share. And I think this shift away from the blank slate therapist is a really powerful one. And I haven't ever received any type of negative feedback from anyone. It has always been the feedback of, I love just knowing that you are a human being who is real, you know, who, because it's so easy for us as therapists to be put up on a pedestal, whether they tell, whether a client tells us that or not. I remember early on these kind of throwaway comments almost where it's, oh, well, do you even ever have like hardship in your life? And you're like, wait, what? You actually don't think that I have hardship in my life? It's like, I remember in the early years hearing some clients just make side comments where it's like, oh my goodness, yeah, okay, of course, right? You think I have it all together. You think that my flicked is me always monotone, <laughs> that I don't ever raise my voice and that I don't ever get reactive and that I do all the things, quote unquote, perfectly. And I think there is something to that human experience of healing and growing and evolution is nonlinear and it is nonlinear in my life too and that healing is sometimes about seeing something differently even if you enter into the same pattern or like even if you do the thing that you don't really want to do but you notice it sooner or you're able to acknowledge it or own it own up to it with a partner or a friend faster than you would have before i think there's something about this concept that a lot of folks have that healing is the destination this is what it looks like you arrive at some moment and when you can share the human experience again in a way that is of service to them right, there's something very beautiful about that so I spoke to two points there, that of, yeah, we're human and we are not to be up on pedestals and we are flawed, always evolving, always growing, always learning individuals too, just like you. And also, if there is something that I have actually been able to place in my life now, 
I do want to share that with you if that's going to be of service for you. That's the line. Will this be of service for you? And obviously, we're having to take a guess here. But I think when you know someone and you actually know that what you're bringing forward is clean, right? then like it's really hard for that to go wrong. I got to ask, because you talk about them in the book, your parents, now that you've done this very personal work and shared it with the masses, what do they think about the book and your evolution as their daughter? Yeah. my So my mom read an early copy of it just about a week before the book pubbed. And she read it through the weekend. And I remember her saying we had gone on a walk and we were sitting on a rock and she asked me, is there anything that I can do to help you with your healing? And I was like, oh, okay. It was an, I had never really heard her say something like that before. Is there anything that I need to do to help you with your healing? And I really appreciated that inquiry. The answer was no, in that I understand where her limitations or constraints are when it comes to maybe what I would ideally wish or want for. And nope, I don't actually need anything here. But even that inquiry felt very meaningful because there was this moment of reflection clearly of in reading that book and recognizing that, yes, as a parent, on some level, she's realizing I've contributed to something. And um, yeah, that, that was a really beautiful moment. And then she had also acknowledged some things. I think it was after she had read maybe the intro and first chapter or so. And she had closed the book and she was sitting on the sofa and she's like, oh. I was so unwell. I was so paranoid. And it's like, wow, I've actually never heard you say that before. And it was just a fascinating moment for me. Not really anything to that I needed to do with it, but there was something I could feel little me, right? Like child me be like, oh, okay, good. Like you do know that is the way that you were showing up and it, I understand why and I know the whole story and all that. But it was really powerful for especially little me, a younger me, to hear her say, yeah, I really wasn't. Yeah, I was really paranoid. And that was her taking very proud and said that the book was phenomenal and so excited for me. My dad, okay, so he's in the book a little, he's in the book more than my mom is. And it's funny because I had shared, oh yeah, Eli, we are, okay, so my dad is Lebanese and that was also a connector of us. Yeah, and we, yeah. Had, we had older fathers too. My father yes. was 49 when he had me and my brother, yeah. Yeah, my dad yeah. was 48 or 40, yeah, turning 48. And he, so I had talked to him about what was going to be in the book. I said, there's the story that I'm going to share in the intro. You're also in the worthiness chapter. And he's, oh, I am. Yeah, no, not for a good reason because you <laughs> did uh, conditional love through silent treatment. And he's, oh, okay. So it's interesting because I had told him what I was putting in the book, but he had never read it until the book pubbed. He didn't want to read it ahead of time. And right off the bat, I get a message from my mom. Okay, your dad is really upset. He's really hurt. He doesn't want to see you. He doesn't want to talk to you. And I remember having this, oh, come on. Well, here we go. Here it is. Did you read the chapter where I said, that you would withhold love through silent treatment. Like I could feel that part getting activated and the little me just being like, oh, it's centered around you and not this big moment in my life. And 
Here's that thing. If you are an easygoing, say the right things, then love, connection, validation, all of the things are there. But the moment that you're difficult, the moment that you speak out in some way, that's when that is taken from you. So a couple of days went on and by and we had a few exchanges and he was he mistakenly called me the day I was on Good Morning America. He was trying to tell his friend to turn on the TV to see me, which was humorous. And then his birthday was actually a couple of days later. So connected then. And then finally, we had a conversation, got him on the phone, and I said, I know that you're upset, and yeah, I just want to talk to you about it. And he started going down the space of that, well, there's more context to it. And I was like, yeah, that I actually know what the context is. In the introduction, I share a story, and I said, that was really intentional for me to leave the context out of the book, because that's the point I'm actually trying to make to the reader is that we actually know that there's always context to the story. But when we focus on the context, we disconnect from what the actual experience and emotional part of it was, what the pain was for me. And so I left the context out because the reader doesn't need that. I understand that you might need that, right? Because this is bringing you into contact with your shame, your embarrassment, maybe your guilt. There's something overwhelming about this. but this is intentional and it's deliberate. And he said, I think I reacted too quickly and he could understand that explanation to him. And then he moved out of it really quickly and was like so proud and cheerleading and sending me messages of how his neighbor just read the book and loved it and all of this. And But it was really interesting to have this book bring us back into that space in a couple of different ways with both my parents. And yeah, for it to just even be this tiny little teaching moment. I don't know how much of it he totally absorbed, but he was able to receive some of that and move on. Now, it is great in both of those stories that you did get some insight and acknowledgement from your parents. But I think why you wrote this as an example, again, to turn people on to therapy and to help people in their own healing, it's not the point. The whole point is about when you do your healing on the family of origin, it is not about the other person's action. It is about what you get for yourself. In fact, if you put the power in the other person, you lose your ability to heal and move on. So I think that's often what we do as therapists. We help our clients like accept and tolerate. We witness for them and we make their outcome not dependent necessarily on the reactions of other people. I thought you did a really a nice job in the book of modeling because a lot of times this a book like this that is a mainstream bestseller list it's going to turn a lot of people onto therapy so the whole point is that when you do your work it is about you and it, if other people get it great at your family of origin if they have a new understanding wonderful but if not it helps you to release the hold it had on you and to move forward which is what you need to be successful in all your other future relationships so you don't repeat some of these patterns. But the fact that dad got it at least a little at the end was good, but not necessarily always realistic for some of our, like my brother is never probably going to get it. And I'm not putting my outcome on his ability to get it, but I'm not letting it consume me uh, moving forward because at least other people can get it. So I'm curious after you wrote the book, now that it's been out and people are, you're getting such good feedback. It does it help you along your journey of healing even more? That's a great question. It's interesting because writing the book itself, like the act of writing the book was 
therapeutic in, in and of itself. I remember when I first started writing, it was, okay, how do I write to the masses? How do I make sure that every person who picks up this book feels seen and heard and understood? How do I make write a book for people who have never been to therapy and people who have been in therapy for decades? How do I write a book to people I can't have a conversation with? Because guess what I do all day, every day is have conversations with people in therapy where I know their actual story. They can ask questions if I say something that they don't necessarily fully understand, and then it grows from there. And at the beginning, I'm like, oh, shoot, how do I how do I get it right for everyone? Bam, there it is, the origin wound again, right? It's like I grew up trying to say the right thing to both of my parents. I share this in the book. I think I was like nine years old when I had to go into the judges' chambers and told me I'm the conversation is going to be recorded. Then both of your parents are going to get a copy of the recording. And then the judge starts to ask me, whose home do you like to live in better? Who who do you like spending more time with? These awful questions to be asking a child. But man, there it was. Okay, how do I put my answers together in this beautifully packaged way to make sure that everyone feels good? And there it was again in this early part of writing the book where it's if you try to write this way, not only will you fail, right? It's like you will not be able to offer the gift that lives inside of you. And I had to shift away from, I don't need everybody to love this book, celebrate this book. Like for some people, it's going to land. For other people, it's not. For some people, they're going to be ready. For other people, they're not. And so what I needed to shift into was to just allow myself to express the things that I have learned and gained and the wisdom along the way that I wanted to share with the world. And whoever was going to make space for that was going to make space for that. And so that was a really beautiful gift for me where there was a big shift at some point in the book writing process. The only reason you got this platform to write the book, I knew meeting you as a very young professional that you were ambitious. There's a lot of times people listen to this podcast. Yes, I want to get into this to help people, but it's also, it is a business and you were very motivated early on and maybe it's the New Yorker in you, but to be successful. And another reason I knew that you were really catching on is when my students and even some of my young clients that are tapped into social media wouldn't mention your Instagram. And I don't know any other MFT that has anywhere near the followers. So at almost 700,000 followers, you've innovated the way MFTs like put their message out there to the masses. So I need to know the idea, obviously that caught fire and that created the form to you to have this much bigger platform now and to write this book, but talk about how you use social media to get your message across. And then I just walk us through how come up with these quotes. And I am curious, I've never asked you this, either your favorite that either not because they had the most views or shares, but because they resonated with you the most. It's probably hard to pick one. You could pick a couple, but talk to us about the whole here. I know you're not about strategy, but there was a strategy to getting your message out and your Instagram again, mindful MFT has taken off and led to all this other stuff we've been talking about. But tell us about that. Yeah. I remember in grad school and exactly to your point, obviously we get into this field because we want to support. Yeah. We want to support and you're allowed to make money too. Let me just drop that in there. I remember early on, oh, you didn't get into this field to make money. And yeah, whatever part inside of me was like, challenge accepted, let's do this. And I always wanted to push the limits. And I even remember getting a postgraduate survey 
asking how much how much income are you making post-graduate school? Because I think they use that data to then say, hey, you come to grad school and here's how much money you're going to make afterwards. But the options were like 25 to 30K, 30 to 35, 35 to 40 and 45 plus. And I remember just like shaking my head being like, wow, look at the limitation there. Like this isn't it. And yeah, there wasn't a G in terms of when I started the Instagram account. I actually had an intern at the time who was in school and she was like, you should start an Instagram account. <laughs> it's like, all right, let's do it. And I remember the intention behind it was I would like for one person every day to be offered a new perspective. Like I would like to just share something that gets somebody to think about themselves or their family or relationships slightly differently than they had before. That was the goal. And then I just kept posting and it was about consistency and it was about quality. And it's, of course, Instagram is saturated right now, but it doesn't matter because the way we're all regurgitating the same information that has generally existed and been revolving around new thoughts are often hard to find. And yeah, that's okay because the way you put your voice to it is the thing that is going to resonate with a group of humans. The way that I put my voice to it started to resonate with a group of humans when it just kept growing and growing. I somehow find found a way to write and speak in such a way that made the, everything that we're talking about here a little bit more accessible and easy for people to digest. And it started to grow and grow. And I'm so glad. I remember people being like, what does MFT stand for? What's, no one knew what MFT was. Well, I'm so wow. glad you had that, that you put that in the title of all of your stuff because... Yeah. That is so important too. You could have gone, especially when you started to really develop a following to go to more generalized self-help, advice, counseling, but you have always kept, even now we've talked today, The even if you don't know anything about family systems, the way you talk eh, to the public and to the masses is embedded in that. So I'm, hey, I'm as somebody who spent the last two plus decades of his life advocating for the professions this whole podcast is about is to keep what we do and make it accessible to more as systemic therapists, as relational healers is so important. But you're, yes, you always have your MFT and in, in everything that you do and all of your media, you are proud to oh. to talk about that for sure. Yeah, so proud. And, I, and because it is such an important way to see ourselves and others, it's like that when people are like, what's a family system? You're like, just a family. <laughs> and it doesn't, these things don't have to be so complicated. But when we're talking about intergenerational this and that, and it's like object relations theory, it's like that doesn't work. That doesn't work for the masses. And so to strip that away and still be able to communicate the message was something that felt so, so important. And I'm so glad that it that it picked up. It has been, obviously, we have lots of thoughts about social media. For me, my relationship with it has been really incredible. It has, in many ways, created my career, certainly to many of its extents. I obviously put in a tremendous amount of work and both on myself personally, but also professionally. And I was a workhorse and I definitely did the things that I needed to do to be excellent. And this space is an important pillar for me. I credit a lot of my growth and success to that platform. It fills every event that I do, every retreat, every this, every that. It's like 
It was something that generated clients for me. I remember there being a shift where I would get on with potential clients and you say, okay, and so I'm Vienna and this is what, this is my approach. And, this is and I remember there was this one time where it all started where some, no, I know who you are. I know what you do. I just want to sign up. And I was like, wait, what? That's wild. I don't need to like actually sit here and have this conversation with you for you to get to know and to see if this is a good fit. They're like, no, I know it's a good fit. I've been following you for a year. Oh, wow. That's incredible. And I had to step outside of my comfort zone a little bit. It's vulnerable. Absolutely. But your voice has a space. Someone needs your voice for sure. And it wasn't, it really wasn't strategic at the beginning. I would write what was on my mind and then post. I didn't overthink it. I didn't have a calendar. There was nothing planned. At, in the early days, I was just like reposting quotes that I thought were interesting. And then finally, I started writing my own and I was doing black and white posts and that was it. And, and I was just like writing about whatever was on my mind that day. Now I finally hired a social media person about six months ago for the first time. People are like, wait, you were doing that all on, I was doing that all on my own and now I need a little bit of support. But yeah, the creative process is like what is inspiring, interesting to me on a particular day. And it just comes from maybe the conversations that I'm having with folks or maybe something that I've learned myself. And yeah, I just try to put it out into the world and write a meaningful caption to accompany it. Your favorite, and maybe you don't have one favorite, but one that, or tell us two, one that personally resonates with you and then one where you really saw your followers take off, therefore mm. resonated with others. Yeah, there a couple of like short ones to the point where one quote was just a reminder that second chances without growth are just patterns. And I had said this in a live session that I was hosting on a on an app. And it wasn't something that I had written out before. It was just in flow. And I said it and I was like, oh, yeah, there it is. Because people were like, is it OK to give people second chances and third chances? What are your thoughts about that? And I remember it just came out of me. and It was like just a reminder that second chances without growth are just patterns, right? When there isn't growth, we haven't reflected and taken the time to see like, what's different about this. Then it's just us entering right back into the pattern. And then another one that emerged from a session, somebody was asking about unconditional love and was like, yeah, love can be unconditional, but relationships must have conditions in order for them to thrive. And that line between can love be unconditional and are relationships unconditional? Should a person love me even if my behavior is X, Y, Z, or that storyline of, oh, if you loved me enough, you wouldn't have this condition. And I think those have been some of the punchy quotes that have been powerful and important to people. I often think of the platform I've been given. I've been lived the dream every day and I value it. And the type of platform you have now is even different levels. So what do you want to do with that platform? Because it is significant and one book leads to another book and leads to the chance to, again, take what we've been talking about and reach all different type of audience. And what you said is, you're right, there's a different model developers or theorists prioritize different. They have model specific language, but we 
you can't reinvent the wheel. What has been out there can be put together in, in new packages, but it's been out there for a while and successful people take that and are able to do something different with it. And you've been able, like I said, to, with family of origin issues and patterns, been able to connect to a whole bunch of new audiences that will now consider psychotherapy or systemic therapy for an individual, which is you can be a family therapist with one person in the room, as we know. So what do you want to do with that platform? If we look back at this, geez, we've 15 years ago since I met you, if we look back at this in another 15 years where hopefully I'll still be around and you will be too, but what do we want to be able to say then you were able to do? Yeah, I think it's similar is to keep bringing this work and this perspective to more and more people. And I think maybe there will be certain things that I focus on. Like I'm really curious and maybe unsurprisingly, as you've heard, my my dad is 85 and I have some clients whose parents are in the last chapter. I'm really fascinated with with the endings and with what is there a goal? Is there a goal towards the end? Is there what does reconciliation look like? Was are there certain things that each wants in this transition. I imagine that I will have probably many different areas in which I bring my attention, but ultimately what I want to keep doing with this platform is to keep offering people this perspective, right? To keep seeing themselves and each other through the lens of the systemic work that we do. People are like, oh, it's so big or your book is going to be this and now you're going to go speak around the world. And I'm like, no, maybe I'll go speak somewhere. But I want to just keep seeing my... It's so interesting to hear people because they're like, oh, what's the next big thing? And I'm like, oh, no, I actually just I still see clients all day, every day, every week. That's And to me, that's the work. I Yes, I'm so grateful I have this platform where the work can go so much further. Beautiful. But the reason... I get to do what I get to do and I get to do it so well is because I have the real honor of getting to work alongside the people who bravely and vulnerably share their stories with me. I can't do what I do without that. That is very clear to me. I'm not going to be able to do what I do by being a researcher and that that alone. Like I have to be in the room with people. That is the thing that is restorative, generative, inspiring to me. It is the thing that allows me to create content. It is the thing that allows me to speak to so many different people's experiences because I have been with so many different experiences as you have now over the course of my career. And so in many ways, it's like a lot of the same, but the focus will change at times. Sure, maybe I will write another book. It's hard to say that after you wrote the first one when you're still in the, <laughs> give me a second. Let me give me a second to recover. But yeah, maybe I'll write another book at some point. I love working with groups. And so I think continuing to do some type of retreat work, maybe Connor and I, my partner, my husband will like the far off dream vision. It, that we have played around with is might we have a retreat center or something like that where we just get to bring in groups on rotation and get to do this work in a really beautiful way. So yeah, I let's do this again in 15 years, Eli, and see what the answer is. Yeah, it's been amazing to follow you from afar and then to talk today. And as you said, at the end of the day too, that you can't say any better than that, that you take people that really love this work and are doing it for the right reasons, direct practice doing the work, being in the room with clients and systems still is my favorite thing to do. And as you said, energizes everything else. And it's refreshing again to hear that. Maybe you can write a quote today about that, but 
I do know that this has been a, a great experience talking to you. This book is great to recommend to any person thinking about exploring their family of origin or thinking about getting into therapy. It's written in a very accessible way with stories is we often sometimes can't see things in our own lives, but we can see it represented in the stories of other people and then helps us get connection to it. So it's a very engaging in every way and follow Vienna on Instagram. Tell them best places to follow your work and development. Yeah, yeah. So on Instagram is Mindful MFT. I, on every podcast, have to explain what MFT is just because they're like, wait, did she say M this T? And I don't have to do that here. No, you all here. know. Not I here. love it. I love yes. it. ViennaFerrin.com. Really, the link in my bio in Instagram has all of the offerings that I am currently, that are currently out into the world. But yeah, ViennaFerrin.com and NewYorkCouplesCounseling.com is also the practice site. But before we go, because I know we're coming to an end here, I want to say to you, because you started off, obviously you introduced what our relationship was, you played a much bigger role than you give yourself credit for. And it's, I think, important for you to know that I might have said it to you when I was graduating, I'm not sure, but I could always feel your support and your celebration of me. And that went such a long way. And connecting with you, I think, and feeling your dedication and commitment to me and the fact that you would jump into the things that I wanted you to jump into. Please watch me in session. Please come in, do the live. Like Those things set the foundation and framework for everything. And so whoever gets to work with you clinically for the clinicians or your clients, like you're a dream. But it warms my heart and <laughs> I really appreciate that. Likewise, the feeling is mutual for sure. Eli, back with you. That was a very special edition of the AMFT podcast. Again, follow Vienna on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and Mindful MFT. The book again, The Origins of You, How Breaking Family Patterns Can Liberate the Way We Live in Love. As always, thank you for listening. You bring us ideas, inspiration, and you can... Drop me a line as always, Eli at NorthStarCounselingCenter.com. I'm also interested in hearing from our listeners. Do you have a book, a self-help book that is broken through the mainstream that you refer a lot to clients as in the vein as I was speaking of Vienna's book? A book that your clients have told you that has turned them or others on to therapy. Very important to have those in your repertoire. Love to hear from our listeners. As always, find us where you find your favorite podcast. I am partial to Apple Podcasts and Spotify, but you can find us anywhere. We always appreciate a star rating and review as it helps us rise to the ranks of the Mental Health Podcast. You can find all of our backlog of shows, five seasons worth where we interview the movers and the shakers and talk about topics that you systemic therapists care about until next time my friends stay safe stay systemic <laughs>